Welcome to episode 1332 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. We have some big baseball news today, but most of this episode will be devoted to an interview that we are extremely excited about. So just to tell you about that before we dive into the banter. All of you will remember if you were with us at the time. Episode 1153, this was in December 2017. We had one of the greatest guests in this podcast history on the show, Johnny O'Brien, former major leaguer from the 1950s. And we were charmed. Everyone was charmed by his stories and his sense of humor and his incredible memory. And he's back. Johnny's back. Johnny O'Brien, the sequel. We've been trying to arrange this for a while. We didn't just want to talk to Johnny again. Well, we did, but we figured we could do even better and bring on two O'Briens instead of one. Johnny's grandson is Riley O'Brien, who is a pretty good pitching prospect in the Tampa Bay Rays system. So Riley just turned 24. Johnny recently turned 88. So this is an intergenerational but intra-family discussion about how baseball has changed and hasn't changed. And Johnny is delightful as always. So if you missed episode 1153, go back and listen to it. It's still great. And you may enjoy this one slightly more if you've heard Johnny in the past, but you can also continue to listen and johnny is uh, still just a charmer and a wonderful guy so happy that we could have them both on agreed i know we have been wanting to do this for a number of months uh, i think mm-hmm. this was you you first brought the idea back to me and what was it early december mid-december yeah it's been it's been a couple of months but yeah it is it is wonderful even to this point i don't know why one would have expected things to change but johnny's memory continues to blow my own memory <laughs> out of the water i think that the gap is actually widening which is not what i would have expected but here we are that's the reality i get to confront <laughs> yeah so we'll get to that conversation shortly but one of the three off-season sagas in terms of transactions has finally been resolved. We've all been waiting for Bryce Harper to sign, we've all been waiting for Manny Machado to sign, and we've all been waiting for JT Realmuto to be traded, and he finally has. So JT Realmuto, no longer a Miami Marlin, he has gone to the Philadelphia Phillies, and you have produced not one, but two JT Realmuto posts in a single day, in addition to previous Realmuto posts, so I'll let you take the lead on this one. You want to lay out the deal and and then we'll discuss it. JT Realmuto is probably the best catcher in baseball. He is also no longer the best catcher in baseball for the Marlins. He's no longer a catcher on the Marlins. He's no longer a Marlin. He is on the Phillies now. There have been points this offseason where I thought JT Realmuto would inevitably end up with the Dodgers. Thought he would inevitably end up with the Mets. Thought he would go to the Braves. Thought he would go to the Reds. Thought did I say the Padres yet? Thought he would go to the Padres. Thought he would go to the Rays at the very beginning of the offseason. I thought he was the most obvious get for the Rays. They got Mike Zanino instead. And ultimately, JT Realmuto was wound up with the Phillies. He is going to replace Jorge Alfaro, who is going to Miami to take over. So those two have been swapped, also going over maybe most prominently, definitely most prominently, Sixto Sanchez, the Phillies' top pitching prospect, going the other way as well as young lefty Will Stewart. And then there is also an international bonus slot that is included. Never really know how to talk about those very much, but it is worth a quarter of a million dollars, which is a lot of money. Well, it's not just money that the Marlins get. Anyway, trade is done. I did write about Realmoto twice on Thursday because helpfully we were given some warning. (laughs) It seemed like things were coming to a head and it took a little bit of time for things to become official, but trade is done. It is a relief to have one of the sweepstakes over with, I don't know what, the, I know Ken Rosenthal had already tweeted out that 
the the Phillies like the idea of using Realmuto as an inducement to try to further lure Manny Machado right. or Bryce Harper, which I got to say, as far as inducements are concerned, beats the hell out of like signing John Jay for a season. Because <laughs> uh, think, yeah. <laughs> this way, if you don't get one of them, you're like, well, at least we have the best catcher in baseball. I wrote what mm-hmm. one of the posts I wrote on Thursday was was titled The Argument for JT Realmuto as baseball's best catcher. And I realized after I wrote that, like maybe it's actually more common knowledge than I thought that he is baseball's best catcher. I really don't know if uh, if mm-hmm. enough people appreciate that. But this is a move that is roughly on par with the Phillies getting Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. Just in, in terms of what Realmuto brings to the table, he is a star player. He's the best at his position. And of course, Harper has higher upside. We've seen that. Machado has higher upside. We've seen that. But Real Muto is a very good hitter who's going to a, a better environment for his bat. He's no longer going to play 81 games in Miami. He will now play 9 or 10 games in Miami as a hitter. That's fewer. That's numbers. So he's, Philadelphia should be a better environment for him. And I think it's a good move. The Phillies have now added Real Muto, Andrew McCutcheon, Gene Segura, and David Robertson in the offseason. All the while, people are like, when are they going to go for it? When, <laughs> right. when are they going to get a good player? So they've been busy. The NL East is going to be just almost as much yeah. of a, just like a competitive, it's not a nightmare, just a gauntlet like the NL Central. But for all I know, it's possible that like the fourth best team in the East might even be better than the best team in the Central. That might be an overstatement. But in any case, the Braves won this division by eight games last year. And now I look at them and I think, well, that could be a fourth place team. Uh, now pity the poor Marlins, but they knew what they're getting into. And they're happy. I know they wanted to keep Real Motor. They're happy to have this done. I don't know how much time the Marlins wasted thinking they could go get someone like Brandon Nimmo or Cody Bellinger or Ozzy Albies for JT Real Motor. That was never going to happen. That was stupid if they tried. But didn't happen they wound up with this package and i gotta say looking at what the marlins are getting i just don't know i have no idea what i have i don't know if i've seen a trade where the centerpieces have such wide error bars there might Mm. not be two more volatile high talent players in the upper levels of of major league baseball jorge alfaro hits the ball Really, really hard. He runs well. He's actually, according to StatCast, the second fastest catcher in baseball behind only JT Realmuto. He throws really hard. He His pop time is really good. Jorge Alfaro does everything good except see the baseball that's thrown at him. So <laughs> he's got – he has the worst difference between a strikeout and unintentional walk rate. He's through age 25. I looked at Major League history. Players through age 25. No one has a worse difference between strikeout and, and unintentional walk rate. I know eras have changed and rates have changed, whatever. He had one of the worst striker rates in baseball last year, one of the worst walk rates. He is extremely aggressive. He's like if Javier Baez were in a mood, I guess. So <laughs> I don't really know what to make of Jorge Alfaro. I look at him and I just can't help but see like, oh, it's going to be Miguel Olivo again. But like genuinely... I mean, Javier Baez just had a big offensive season, so Alfaro could work. Mm-hmm. Six Steph Sanchez is a different, maybe more familiar kind of gamble because he is just a young, super talented pitching prospect who was injured. He yeah. didn't uh, He didn't break. He didn't snap, but it feels like maybe something could, and that is the concern. Yeah, right. Baseball America just rated him the number 13 prospect in all of baseball. I think MLB.com and, and Baseball Prospectus had him in the 20s, so obviously a very promising player, but yeah, 19 years old, or I guess uh, just turned 20, and and he was in high A, and so there's a lot of uncertainty there, what with the arm and everything, but clearly has a lot of talent. 
It's funny you mentioned the shortcomings that Alfaro has as a hitter, and they're real, but he does, over the past couple seasons, have a, a 103 WRC plus in almost 500 plate appearances, so basically a, a full catching season. He's been an above-league average hitter, not just above average for a catcher, but above-league average. Now, maybe he can't keep that up. But, of course, he doesn't really have to to be valuable because he is a catcher. And this is an era when catchers can't hit. This is like a historically bad era for catcher offense, which is probably one reason why it seems like there just aren't a lot of stars at the catching position. And so we're we're all just kind of like, yeah, I guess Real Muto is the best player at the position, but he doesn't feel like he should be the best player at a position. It feels like, you know, Buster Posey or, or someone who's like an MVP caliber player should be at the top of that list and right now I think that it's hard to evaluate this because you're looking at the upgrade and Real Muto can be a a very big upgrade on some teams and he is a sizable upgrade for the Phillies as well but they have a pretty good catcher in Alfaro and so I wonder because I recently ranked all of the positions the top 10 guys at every position for MLB Network and we did catchers and I did have Real Muto at the top of my list wasn't an easy call but I went with him But I had Alfaro as number 10. Now, maybe I'm too high on Alfaro. That is relying on pitch framing, which is something he excelled at last year and Real Muto doesn't really. But in that sense, it's less of an upgrade than it would be for some teams, probably, maybe even most teams, but still a significant one. And the Phillies are at that point where every win really matters, especially if they do now use this as a lure to add Harper or Machado. I grant, I am an admitted, or if not before, I am now an admitted Jorge Alfaro and Sixto Santa skeptic. I think that they can be good. I certainly don't doubt their upside, but I think this is a trade where you'll see it depending on how comfortable you are with high volatility players. I am not super comfortable with Alfaro's skill set. I recognize he's been a league average hitter and therefore better than average hitting catcher to this point in his major league career, but I mean, the walks are dreadful. The strikeouts are dreadful. He's got a 405 career BABIP, which I mean, LOL, no, that's not going to be a real thing. So he hits the ball really hard. I like the upside, but I I do think moving forward, Jorge Alfaro is not as good as his numbers. I am more, I don't know, careful with the pitch framing numbers than I think I've ever been before, just because I think that there's a reason to believe that maybe they don't do such a great job of separating the the influence of just the pitchers that you're catching, uh, because JT Romoto, you might realize, has been catching some bad pitchers. Last year, mm-hmm. Jorge Alfaro, for example, got to catch some some good pitchers. I know that Alfaro did improve as a defender last season. And that's great. He does everything well, except for what I consider to be the most important thing as a hitter. So that's going to be mm-hmm. a little difficult. And again, Miguel Oliva lasted a long time in the majors. So even if Alfaro, I don't know if whether that's like the 40th or 50th percentile outcome for his career, but, you know, Olivo came up as a prospect and he stuck around for a while and he never knew how to hit. He just ran into a ball every so often and it went a long way. So that was now granted. Olivo also couldn't really frame. Not a great defender. Alfaro has the leg up on him. But mm-hmm. eh, I feel like if you are going to have someone who's that volatile, I would, I'd be willing to give him up. And as much as if Six of Sanchez was going to be like the the sticking point, I will pretty much ten times out of ten give up an injured, young, unpolished pitching prospect to go get the best player at a position. So I I get. Why Phillies fans, some Phillies fans might not love this trade, but I really like Real Moto and I think this is a, a really good move. 
Yeah, and as my colleague at The Ringer, Zach Cram, recently documented and and came on the show to talk about, there is a a pattern where top 50 prospects, historically speaking, the ones that get traded don't end up panning out quite as well as the ones that don't get traded, which suggests that perhaps their organizations know something about them, just have a little less faith and for good reason. So, for instance, if the Phillies are wary of Sanchez for whatever reason, then that's something you can take into account and think, well, maybe they had a reason for trading him that's not immediately apparent. But yeah, I think that Real Muto is probably the best catcher in baseball, as you explained in your post Really, you have to completely buy into the framing to make an argument for anyone else, and I think I do mostly buy into it, but because he has been pitching with this extremely bad staff, maybe there is something to him being underrated as a receiver, and he's not bad. He's perfectly competent, even according to the stats, and everything else he's good at. He's fast, especially for a catcher, and he hits for power, and he hits extremely well on the road historically, and that's another thing that you've shown that it seems as if playing in Miami has hurt him more than playing in a home park has hurt just about any player over the past 15 years or so. And so if you look at his road line and say, well, that's going to be his home line now, well, then he'll be an even better hitter than he has been in the past. I don't know that you can completely expect that to be the case. Maybe there was some small sample stuff going on there, but it is pretty striking when you look at how much he was apparently hurt by Marlins Park and how much of an upside there might be there. Yeah, I definitely don't want to make too much of this, but it amused me when I saw that over the past three years, JT Real Muto has a better W plus on the road than Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I think that one reason I've seen some criticism, and, and maybe it's more just saying, yeah, the Marlins got a, a pretty good return here. They did fairly well. Of course, we all thought that about the Christian Yelich trade, and now it looks like the, the Brewers did quite well with that trade. But I think one angle where you could criticize the decision-making is you might say, well, why not hold on to your talent, hold on to your prospects, and just spend some money? They said they were going to spend a lot of money this offseason. Of course, maybe they are holding some in reserve for Machado or Harper. But you had Yasmani Grandal out there, and we know he ended up signing for a single year. And the gap between Grandal and Real Muto, at least statistically speaking, doesn't seem to be significant. So that's the case, I guess. If you have money, why not just go get Grandal for one year? And they may not have known that Grandal would end up signing for one year. And who knows? Maybe they never had the opportunity to match that offer. Maybe he didn't want to play there. Who knows what was going on behind the scenes? But Just kind of from the outside, you could look at it and say, why not hold on to Alfaro or hold on to Sanchez and just sign a a stopgap really good guy for one year and hoard your prospects? Because Real Muto is younger and he's uh, what he's about to turn 28 next month and he's only signed for two years. So it's not like you're getting a really long term guy here relative to Grendel. Yeah, no, that's fair. And what I can only sort of have to assume is maybe the Phillies don't have quite as much money to spend as people would want the Phillies to be able to spend. Now, I don't know. Again, we can never speak to their books, but pretty obviously the Phillies are trying to go for it. They didn't hesitate in spending for Andrew McCutcheon. They didn't hesitate in spending for for David Robertson. They have spent money and they are still trying to spend a whole lot of money to get one of the two premium players out there. I don't know to what extent it's it's just hard to create a budget when you were looking to hand out what could still end up being the biggest contract in the history of Major League Baseball. Probably won't get there, but could. 
So I don't know what, what that is like. I do understand and appreciate the argument that you could have just gone and, and signed Grandal potentially and not had to do this. But on the other hand, I like Real Muda more than Grandal. I think there are fewer question marks with Real Muda than there are with Grandal. Definitely cost less. And and I have reason to believe that Sixto Sanchez was sort of more available throughout the offseason than was led on, in which case... Uh, just as, as Zach Ram and others have pointed out, that could be considered something of a, a yellow or maybe even red flag, that there mm-hmm. just could be something that the Phillies aren't in love with anymore, and they saw this as an opportunity to sell high. Yeah. So I don't know if you happen to have the depth charts and projections handy, but where do the Phillies project if Real Muto has been added to their depth charts already? Well, I have added him to their depth chart, but I believe it's not yet reflected on the, the public-facing side. But that being the case, the Phillies should move up, obviously, some number of wins. Uh, this is all still going to be based on the steamer projections. I think that when this is done, they're going to end up close to, but still behind the Mets. And then the Nationals are out in front of the Mets. And so they'll be about even with the Braves, pending, of course, the possibility that the Phillies do still one more thing. So it's, uh, it's coming together. There are questions still on the roster. Michael Franco is still listed as a starter. Roman Quinn or Nick Williams or Odubel Herrera, that's currently going to be two-thirds of, of the outfield. That could be improved upon, but Phillies will look more like a wildcard contender after this move, and then with the next one, if there is a next one, then they're going to surge all the way up and maybe push the Nationals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are a lot of teams that could potentially afford Harper or Machado or could certainly benefit from Harper or Machado, but the Phillies are right on that bubble where not only do they have positional needs and openings for those guys, but they're at that point where adding one of those guys and upgrading by four or five wins could actually push them across some sort of threshold or or at least push them right into top contender status. So if you want to talk about marginal wins and and wins and war being worth more to certain teams that are in certain competitive situations, the Phillies kind of meet that description because this is a tough division. And I don't know if they don't make that one more move, they won't enter the season as the favorite most likely. Yep. All right, so I think that wraps up our Real Mudo discussion. It's it's nice to have that whole off-season waiting behind us. And just one more word, Frank Robinson died on Thursday at 83, and I don't know that either of us is qualified to deliver the comprehensive Frank Robinson obituary. Obviously, we never saw him play and didn't root for teams whose legacy he was really important to, but... He is obviously an inner circle Hall of Fame player, one of the best hitters of all time. I was just scanning, if you look at, say, career WRC+, and he's a guy who played till he was 40, so he dragged his numbers down a little bit there at the end. He's still like a top 20 hitter of all time, if you set the numbers to a fairly long career. And everyone knows, I mean, the MVP awards in both leagues being traded at 30 and what ended up being one of the most lopsided trades of all time and kind of unusually for his era, splitting his career between the Reds and the Orioles. And that was not something that happened all that often with superstars at that point. And just an incredible inner circle player and one of the guys who... His impact and legacy goes beyond the stats because, of course, he was the first black manager. He was a a high-ranking executive at MLB and an advisor till the very end and was an outspoken critic of the lack of representation in the major league hierarchy and 
just like at the top of any list of most feared players and just relentless and tough players. And I know he meant a lot to people who saw him play. And perhaps a a guy whose greatness as a player is a little overshadowed by his post-playing career and the way that he was a, a trailblazer. If you just look back at his peak, it is one of the the most impressive peaks of all time. Yeah, like you said, I, I'm definitely, you and I are not qualified to deliver the proper eulogy here, so I will just point out that Frank Robinson ranks 24th in baseball history with 107.3 wins above replacement, according to Baseball Reference, and somehow, because of I don't know how voting works, 1982, he was elected to the Hall of Fame on the first ballot, but 45 of 415 voters left him off. Somehow, 45 <laughs> out of 415 voters decided Frank Robinson was not one of the greatest players of all time, even though to that point, he was absolutely one of greatest players of all time those are people who didn't even have the chance to watch Barry Bonds take a plate appearance or an bat so I don't know what else there is for me to try to say I can't do it justice so I shouldn't even bother you should uh if you all are big fans of Frank Robinson or want to hear more about him read more about him I would recommend just typing into Google and figuring out <laughs> and reading some accounts of people who who knew him or who saw him play or preferably both because they are going to be able to tell you much more than Ben and I can but we can give you JT Rail Muda news just out the wazoo <laughs> well fortunately we're about to talk to someone who not only saw Frank Robertson play but also played against him so we will briefly ask Johnny O'Brien about his experience with Frank Robinson. And by the way, it's been a a very busy baseball news week, finally, fortunately. And uh, there is stuff that we don't even have time to talk about today, but we have another episode coming up tomorrow. So all the stuff about proposed changes to the game and possible rule stuff, we will get into that very soon. But right now, we will take a quick break and we will be back with Johnny O'Brien and Riley O'Brien. O'Brien to Ryan to Goldberg. What? A great double play. The other team never can get to score. In every inning, we keep them from winning. Each time that they try for a rally, that's when we save the day. Someone's on first and the game is in doubt. The guy up at bat hits a terrible clout. The dust clears away and they're both of them out. O'Brien to Ryan. To Goldberg. So we are thrilled now to be joined again by Johnny O'Brien, one of our favorite podcast guests of all time. And he was, of course, a Pirates and Cardinals and Braves player in the 1950s and a college basketball legend and a great storyteller. Johnny, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure being with you and uh, having the grandson on with Yes, well, you've given it away. So we are also joined now by Johnny's grandson, Riley O'Brien, who is a pitcher in the Tampa Bay Rays organization and just celebrated his birthday earlier this week. Hello, Riley. Hi, how are you guys? We are doing well. So I know that there is a a story that you have told before, John, and and was in a Seattle Times story about you and your brother recently where you showed up from New Jersey at Seattle University and you'd gotten scholarships and they got one look at you and they thought, oh, my God, these are the O'Briens because you were, you know, 5'8", 5'9", and they were expecting 6'3", 6'4". Riley actually is 6'4". So where did that mm-hmm. height come from? <laughs> How did you get so tall, Riley? I, we honestly have no idea. We've been trying <laughs> to figure it out for years, and yeah, we have no clue. So you're just the, the outlier in the O'Brien family? or Yeah, 
Huh. Yeah, me and most my brother, of the grandchildren. Most of the grandchildren are over six feet. Yeah. Huh. So maybe are, are you the the outliers then, Johnny and, and your brother Ed? Were you the the unusual ones in the family? No, no. My my dad was one of the twelve children, eight boys, and none of them were six feet. Huh. And uh, Al Brightman, when he got a scholarship for Ed and I at Seattle U, uh, he told him we were six three or six four. So. <laughs> And, you know, I'll stay with that. So Riley and I are about six four today. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> but uh, no, we were about five eight, five nine in those days, and uh, and it's kind of interesting. And the answer to your question is hard to say because all of the grandchildren, the boys, are over six feet. Riley's brother uh, Brendan is a pitcher in, uh, at Linfield uh, on a college scholarship, and he's almost six three. Uh, our grandson Connor is a uh, sophomore at Seattle University, a heck of a shortstop, and he's 6'2", so uh, they must have been eating better than we did. <laughs> so we're, we're obviously we're here talking to Riley and, and Grandfather Johnny, and, and Johnny, you and your brother both played in the major leagues, and Riley, you and the other family in your generation is active. You are an active professional with the Tampa Bay Rays. What was happening in the intermediate generation? Was, was there any high-level performance in... Riley, in, in your dad's generation, or, or did it just kind of skip a step? I mean, I, I know my dad didn't. He played soccer and, you know, baseball and stuff when he was young, but it seems to me like it kind of just skipped a generation. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, the boys, uh, you know, they were athletic, but they played a lot of soccer and some baseball, but uh, they didn't get involved professionally at all. And uh, this group now, um, uh, I think uh, Brendan and Connor have also got a chance of being drafted uh, one of these days, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the day I go out to the ballpark and watch Riley throwing in the major leagues. Yeah. Well, John, I know you had seven kids and, what, 11 grandchildren and, and counting. So when did you realize that Riley had a chance or at, at what age did uh, did he show this promise, did you think? Well, you know, Ed and I taught baseball schools for years with uh, about four other fellows out here. And... Uh, Riley and his brothers and all the youngsters, the grandsons, attended the the camps, and we were very strong on fundamental teaching of the the game of baseball. And I think it rubbed off on them. Uh, It was very helpful, I would have to say that. And uh, they're all fundamentally sound, and uh, and they they had enough ability, all of them, to uh, gain a college scholarship. One of the things that I noticed about our family uh, is they can all throw hard. Everybody could throw the ball hard. And I think that uh, uh, got us into, uh, well, Ed and I into pitching as well as everything else. And uh, uh, Riley is pitching. They've used Brendan and Linfield College as a pitcher. And uh, uh, Connor is a shortstop uh, and a backup pitcher at Seattle University. So uh, good arm strength uh, and fundamental knowledge uh, has been the key. And, of course, as I told you last year, uh, it has been the, the great thing for both Ed and I to get a college education and a degree, and it also is a, the same thing for Riley. No matter what happens from this moment on, he has a degree in business uh, administration from the College of Idaho, which incidentally is the same school that uh, Elgin Baylor went to before he transferred to Seattle U. And so uh, the baseball, which is uh, the equivalent of uh, 
five humming, hummingbirds, uh, weighs five ounces, has been an awfully important thing in the O'Brien family. So, Riley, I was I was curious when I I'll just scroll to your baseball reference page, and when I look at the College of Idaho, there are exactly six players who are in the database. The school was founded in 1891. I don't know how far back the baseball program stretches, but in any case, you are one of the only players from the College of Idaho who has been selected to participate in professional baseball. So what what is the story behind how you were scouted and, and ultimately signed by Tampa Bay? So, I mean, I kind of struggled through college. I didn't, I went to a community college before I went to College of Idaho and really didn't get a lot of time. Didn't I just didn't quite have it figured out. And then my, my head coach at my community college, he attended College of Idaho. And he actually, I believe uh, on uh, last Sunday, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame for College of Idaho. And uh, so he called up the coach and they said, Hey, I have this guy. He's got some potential, but he doesn't have really have it figured out right now. And uh, the coach, my head coach at College of Idaho, uh, he took a chance on me, never saw me pitch, nothing. They were able to give me a little scholarship money and then had a pretty decent junior year. And then senior year is when it all kind of clicked. We had a scout day. So a couple of scouts came out and saw and I think one of them was interested. We talked a little bit. I filled out a couple of questionnaires. And then um, there was one game during the season. We were playing uh, Lewis and Clark State who's one of the top programs in the NAI. And um, that was when I was originally in the bullpen. And then about a half hour before the game, the coach said that I was going to start that game. And I ended up starting and I pitched well. And my velocity was higher than it had ever been. And I think that really caught the interest of a lot of scouts. And one of the scouts there was the race scout. And we, uh, we stayed in touch. They came back and watched me a few more times. And then, uh, yeah, they ended up taking me in the draft. You know, I never got to know either of my grandfathers, so the, the first time we talked to John, I, I almost wanted him as an honorary grandfather. I feel like you kind of the you won the, the grandfather sweepstakes here. So growing yeah. up, knowing John and, and also Ed, I mean, how did that rub off on you or, you know, listening to these stories, being coached by them? Did that play an important role in your going on to, to be a baseball player? Or, or what was it like just to be regaled with these tales of, of oh, old yeah. baseball? I mean, absolutely. It was great to have him growing up. And, you know, and as you guys know, he's got, he could tell stories all day. <laughs> so just, you know, being a kid and hearing all these stories. And, and then now that I'm playing and going through and kind of relating to some of them, I mean, it's just been great. He's been there and the whole time. He's always keeping up. It's definitely been, I've been lucky to have him. I don't want to assume anything about how often you talk or, or what your communication is like between uh, Riley and, and you, Johnny, but I was I was curious because not only Riley are are you playing now in uh, in the minor league baseball, but you're also playing with the Tampa Bay Rays, who are considered one of the more progressive and uh, technical organizations in baseball today. And I don't know to what extent that has influenced you, but how how often have you and your grandfather talked about just what player development looks like now versus what it looked like 60, 70 years ago? Um, we've been able to talk about it a little bit. You know, I mean especially now with all the technology that goes into everything and all the decisions that get made on which players are good and not. I mean, it's just crazy to like hear when he talks about how, you know, they really had none of that back then. It was just, you know, if you can play, you can play. And then now seeing what it's like, it's just, I mean, it's two completely different worlds. It's crazy. Yeah. Are there aspects of that that you wish that you had had in your career, Johnny, or are you happy that you missed this era? No, I, I'm a person that doesn't look back. I was very happy, though, to you know to be there and to be able to do the things that uh, I was able to do. And uh, and I noticed I haven't given Riley, you know, 
a lot of instruction. But I only tell him two things. I tell him, when you land there, throw in that pitch, that front foot has to point directly at the plate and throw strikes. And I don't think mm-hmm. that makes me a super uh, person in the knowledge of baseball, but it sure does an effective way to pitch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I noticed today uh, in an unfortunate situation, Frank Robinson died. Yes. And Frank Robinson was the first guy I ever pitched against in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had you tell that story on the last podcast, which was great. And I was going to bring it up today again just to, to ask if you had any other recollections of playing against him in the early years of his career. That was the only time I ever pitched against him. Uh-huh. And as I told you, I thought I was coming in to play second base and Bergen pointed to the mound and Hank Foyles came out and and Bertie Tebbets, you know, he tried to say I couldn't pitch because I had to screen behind the plate with my first throw and get warming up. And uh, there was no uh, pitcher's roster in the National League. And so, uh, long story short, uh, Robinson was the first guy. Hank Foyles asked me what I got. And I said, I got nothing. So, you know, I throw hard. I got that goofy hard knuckleball I throw. It looks like a spitter. And I said, that's it. And he said, okay. He said, uh, One's a fastball, two's a curve, three's a slider. Wiggle of the hands is a change up, and fist is. is and I said, "What the hell are you give me all those things for? I haven't got any." <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I pitched around and I threw a fastball by him. Then I kind of brushed him back, not on purpose. I was trying to come inside, but he hung right over the plate. Threw another fastball, got in past him, and then Foyles put down two for a breaking ball. And I said, "What the hell is that?" And uh, so I was moving my fingers around. I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I threw it as hard as I could to turn about be a pretty good slider. And, and I struck him out. And I've always thought on the way back to the dugout, Robinson must have said, if that bird can strike me out, maybe it's time to retire. <laughs> so anyway, he didn't retire. He became the MVP in both, uh, both leagues. The only player to ever do that. And, uh, it, it, he was quite a player, and um, you know, I I think Ed and I were so proud that we played against 52 Hall of Famers, mm-hmm. either with them or against them in our day. And uh, uh, you know, it's sad to see him pass on, but he was a great asset to the game of, of baseball. Yeah, I've seen stories and and read quotes from people who played second base when he was on the bases and would say that he would play so hard, he would slide in so hard, it was scary just to to be playing second when he was at first. So maybe you lucked out facing him on the mound instead of being in the field, as you thought. Well, I I was playing second base on a number of occasions when he came in, but from playing basketball, I was able to leap pretty good. So I would have to get up in the air and get over him and uh, get the ball over to first base. But in our day, uh, yeah, you um, when you came across that bag, you didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, you you had to do one of the four ways to get out of the way or you were going to get hit. And But the key was you had to make that throw to first base to try to get the double play. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, today they're into this analytics or whatever the heck they call it and all that stuff and, and uh, I, I, we never had any of that and uh, and I'm not a great fan of it to begin with uh, it tells you when you're going good uh, what you're doing and all that but it doesn't take into account uh, when you're hitting you go through slumps you go through good stages and when you're hitting good you don't care who's pitching and when you're going bad Charlie Temple could throw you throw you catch out so uh, you know, analytics doesn't analyze that. And, and so I think some of this stuff is a little bit overdone, but uh, 
no one has asked my opinion except you on that. And so anyway, <laughs> I, I, and I don't think anybody will. But anyway, the game has changed uh, dramatically. Money's a great big part of it. You know, in our day, no one, no one knew what another player was making or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, statistics would come out on the paper on Sunday that would cover up to Thursday. So you never knew exactly what you were hitting or what the ERAs were. Now, now they change automatically. And, and so it was a totally different game. Pitchers got the ball and they wanted nine innings. They didn't want five and look around for help. Uh, and of course it's, it's, it's changed. Uh, money is a very uh, different part of the game now. Uh, and it, it, it involves the need to uh, make some trades and things like that, which you ordinarily might not know how to make because of salary caps and things of that nature. But you know, I consider myself a dinosaur in regard to baseball, but I, I like the fact that I was a dinosaur in, a, in an era where there was a lot of good dinosaurs playing. <laughs> I appreciated the part of the answer imputing the state of analytics when Riley is here playing for one of the most analytical organizations in Major League <laughs> Baseball. And I was curious, I realized we haven't done what we usually do. Riley, if you wouldn't mind, we know that you're very tall and we know that you've pitched in the low minors, but could you offer us a, sort of a scuff scouting report? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a starting pitcher. My fastball is pretty good. Velo's from mid 90s, get up to 97, 98. Good slider. Curveball needs some work, and uh, my change has been developing recently. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's about it. <laughs> I was talking to someone else at our site who has seen you pitch, and you know, he sort of said the the same thing you were just saying. And obviously, you you throw hard, and even for this era when. Mm-hmm. Everyone throws hard. And Johnny, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, we don't know exactly how hard guys were throwing in your day. We didn't have uh, data on that. There were no radar guns. So I'm sure you could tell who the hard throwers were and, and who they weren't. But it's hard to compare to today's pitchers. But the speeds that even you know Riley is is throwing, you would think there just weren't many guys in that era who could throw that hard. I mean, that must have been the the absolute top of the scale. Do you see Riley pitch today and and think I'm glad I didn't have to face him, or were there guys who were throwing that hard in your day? Well, I, I'm sure I wouldn't want to face Riley because he'd probably knock me down on the first pitch. <laughs> Joe, who's in charge? But uh, you know, uh, in my day, Sandy Koufax would could throw as hard as anybody today. Bob Feller, Bob Rush, Vinegar uh, Ben Mizell when he first came up. Uh, there were a lot of hard throwers, but nobody knew how hard they threw. As a matter of fact, one time the owner of the Washington Ball Club, when they were in the American League, put on a promotion that they were going to uh, put the clock on uh, Bob Feller when he came in with Cleveland to pitch against him. And uh, they got one of the old-time radars that the, the state patrol used to use to try to figure out how hard he was throwing. And Feller being uh, as smart as he was, he said he wasn't going to throw unless they paid him something. So anyway, he got a few dollars for it, and the uh, radar thing was so antiquated that they never could get a real reading. So anyway, we knew they were hard throwers, and, and, and I, I think you're right. I think there's more, there, there is more of them today uh, because, you know, the, the, the uh, vitamins and the, the, they're bigger and they're stronger nowadays and they're into uh, other types of, of things which tend to, to give them more uh, velocity. But uh, the, the, the key, of course, to, to, to getting your optimum speed 
is having the good mechanics. And that's one thing I've always liked about Riley. He's got good mechanics. And with that front put pointed right at the plate and a good follow-through, high hopes that someday I'll go down to the ball field here and see Riley pitching for Tampa Bay. And i got to tell you, another thing that's different, Riley pitched for four different ball clubs in the Tampa Bay organization this year. And they were the Hot Rods, <laughs> the Stone Crabs, the Dorm Bulls, and the Montgomery Biscuits. Now, it, it almost sounds like you're coming to the dinner table with some of these ball clubs today. <laughs> and, and then he, we were pirates, pirates and lions and stuff like that. So anyway, the game has changed, and it's a game of uh, more strength, uh, bigger people, and uh, and I think that's just a part of the evolution of the game. We would have, like I tell people, if I was born today, I'll be 89 in a couple of months, I'd be bigger and stronger. And I'm sure 20 years from now, well, I look at the CMU basketball team. Uh, we're in the WAC, Western Athletic Conference, and I go to the games, and I look at the scorecard before the game starts, and every team in that league West, that Seattle's doing this year has at least one seven-footer on the team. In my day, uh, Bob Curlin was about the only seven-footer that was rolling around, and George Bikett was 6'10", and uh, I played against Mike a couple of things. But, and, uh, so, so the athletes are bigger, they're stronger, uh, they're into uh, more training pro- programs and things that we had in our day. You know, uh, they Nowadays, they have trainers and they have exercise people and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, we we had a temporary doctor at the Pirates that was good to get the wax out of your ears. But that was about all that was done because nobody would re- admit they were sick or hurt because you know that there were 57 other ball clubs uh, in minor leagues, I should say. And uh, a lot of players down there were better than you. So you wouldn't you wouldn't let anybody know you were hurt. You would play hurt. Today, there's uh, much more of uh, with the agent and uh, all of that of, uh, I don't say coddling the youngsters, but taking better care of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if either one of you caught wind. There was a minor controversy recently where relief pitcher Adam Bottavino said that if, if he faced Babe Ruth, that he would strike him out pretty much every single time. And some people took offense to that, thinking here's Babe Ruth, greatest hitter of all time, and that's Adam Bottavino. Pretty good one-inning relief pitcher. I don't mean to put either of you on the spot, but have you decided? Now, Johnny, you made the major leagues. Riley, you're on your way. On the other hand, Riley, you throw 95, 97 miles per hour at three other pitches. Johnny, you might not have faced that. Have you decided exactly how often, Riley, you would have struck Johnny out if you were facing each other at your peak? I'll answer that. I'll answer that zero. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have got the ball on the bat. (laughs) Yeah, I believe that. (laughs) Yeah, I was a contact type hitter. I'd I'd put the ball in play somewhere. But but Roddy, the the thing about Roddy is to, to, uh, I guess, uh, modest to uh, tell you this. When they, they had him down there for a special deal, they do all kinds of experimenting now, and, and uh, they have already determined that his fastball and his breaking ball is above major league standards. Mm-hmm. So so they have they have good high hopes for him. And, of course, you know, you, you always keep your fingers crossed because there could be injuries, there could be a lot of things happen. But uh, we and the family are in high hopes of all going down to the ballpark someday and, and uh, watching Rowdy Troll 98 
and uh, get the ball past some of those Mariners. Yeah. Well, last time we talked to Johnny, we we talked about how he was a a bonus baby and he went directly to the big leagues. And Riley, I I wonder if you can imagine doing that because obviously you want to be in the big leagues. That's the goal and and hopefully it'll happen sometime soon. But Johnny just went straight from college to the big leagues when he was the same age that you were when you were pitching in rookie ball. So can you imagine Mm -hmm. making that transition, which almost nobody makes these days? Yeah, I mean that's just something not not it doesn't happen. I mean, yeah. even especially looking at our organization, seeing how talented some of the players are and how long they take developing them, and you know, not rushing them and pushing them too quick. I mean, to think that somebody would skip every minor league level and go straight to the big leagues is, I mean, that's just crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the Rays have a, a reputation for taking their time with pitchers and bringing them along sort of cautiously. And I, I know that you got up to AAA for a, a couple innings at the end of last season in the playoffs. Do you mm-hmm. have any idea where you'll be starting this season or is that still to be determined? I mean, I really don't know. It, it won't be a AAA. They made it clear that, you know, it was what they brought me up because they felt that I had a good season and they wanted to reward me by, you know, giving me some experience in a higher higher level ball club. But they didn't make it clear that, you know, most likely I'm not going to be breaking there this season. But I mean, as for, I mean, I, it's really hard to tell where they, they don't really say anything, honestly, until mm-hmm. the day that they post the rosters. So it's really kind of hard to get a read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. Riley uh, moved up four grades last year. A, strong A, double A, triple A. So, you know, performance uh, dictates with a lot of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And what Johnny was just referencing about how your pitches grade out, is that uh, sort of like a, a trackman-based thing that you've had your pitches tracked? Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether you've done some of the, the high-speed camera work and gotten a look at all of that. What, what sort of uh, data have you been given access to? I mean, it wasn't until this is about a week or two ago I got it was uh yeah spin spin rates from my trackman uh mm-hmm. numbers all logged to the season but that was really kind of the first thing that they gave us that had to do with analytics last year they kind of didn't really show us too much I think they didn't want us to get in our heads and you know and start overthinking stuff they made it clear this year that uh they want to make sure everyone's informed about their you know spin rates and what pitches are effective when mm-hmm. and so I think they're going to start implementing that more because they're starting to see success with it. Mm-hmm. Riley, last season, of course, the Rays unveiled their idea of, of using the opener. They played Jose Alvarado at first base. They played Sergio Romo at third base. There are few teams that are more creative than theirs. And is it is it more exciting or sort of disruptive to be pitching in an organization where they seem to demand so much versatility and, and you might not necessarily know what a role would look like even if you did make it to the major leagues? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not it's not something I think about too much. I you know I pitched out of the bullpen. I've been a starter, been you know a late late inning guy. But I mean, so really, all I think about is just pitching well and where, however they want to use me, that'll get me up to the big leagues. That's that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is cool to see all the stuff that they're doing, and you know, even the opener stuff kind of trickled down to my leagues, and we did it a few times. And 
you know, it's just it's just kind of interesting to see how it's all working out. Yeah. Johnny, as you mentioned in the era when you were playing, guys mostly just finished what they started or, or at least intended to. But there was some flexibility, like, you know, rotations were not quite as rigid as they are now where you have the same five guys going in the same order, right? I mean, there would be some, you know, this guy pitches against this team and maybe you have your best guy go against your top opponent and guys would maybe go in and out of uh, swingman roles sort of maybe in a little more flexible way than we have today? There was some rotation of pitchers, but in those days, pitchers uh, pitched every fourth day, not fifth day. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they paced themselves, I think. Uh, and nowadays, the pitchers, it seems like they, some of them are told to throw as hard as you can for six innings and we'll get somebody else in there. Uh, in the old days, they gave the ball to the pitcher and they said, uh, pick, give us nine innings. And the, the one difference in that was that when you had pitchers pitching every fourth day and uh, not so much of the uh, use of uh, pitchers from the sixth inning on, uh, you were able to have one or more uh, utility players on your staff because you weren't using as many pitchers. And uh, so that, that was a, a difference that has changed around a bit. Uh, yeah, I told you the story last year, Lou Burdett, when you have uh, Fred Haney to ball one time when the uh, Haney come out to get him with Musial batting, and uh, well, and when the pitchers got the ball in those days, boy, they wanted nine innings. They didn't, they didn't want anybody messing around with their game. And, uh, and I know I don't know whether I told you about playing second base and Warren Spawn's doing fiftieth win, beat the Phillies three to one, and uh, in the eighth inning, Del Ennis got a triple off Spawn and scored a run. I think with Granny Hammer scored. And after the game, we're all congratulating Spawn and uh, on his 250 win. And he said to me, oh, did you see that lousy pitch I threw to Ennis in the eighth inning? He was more concerned about throwing a bad pitch in his mind to Ennis than he was about his 250th win. <laughs> so there was a, a great deal of, uh, I want to do it and I want to do it myself. And the game has changed somewhat in that direction. But uh, you know, who's better or for the worse? Uh, you know, the drawing record attendance is uh, uh, the agent and the and free agency has kind of changed the game around quite a bit. But, uh, you know, it's still a great game and uh, everybody loves playing in it. And did I see, uh, Ben, that uh, Bob Friend passed away? Yes, that's right. Just recently. Uh, you know, when the minute I saw that, I, I thought of a game in Chicago we played where Bob was pitching day game. Matt King Cole was at the game. Hmm. And... Uh, Matter of fact, uh, that was the first time met him. He, he was in the second row uh, by the visitors' dugout, and we were on the first base side. And I was in the batter's box, was right close to the stands. And I heard this "Hello, Johnny," and I turned around and it was Nat King Cole. <laughs> and I damn near dropped my teeth. <laughs> Today I could have given them to him, uh, but he he would say hello to all the players. It was just great. But anyway, friend was pitching this day, and friend had a very, very strong uh, sinker uh, and a hard uh, half half curveball, half slider. And he was very effective with him. He threw strikes. And I remember this day he was on the top of his game. And one part of the game, I think it might have been Frankie Baumholz, hit a slow grounder just past Bob coming up towards second base. I came roaring in and grabbed it bare hand and threw to Defondi or, or Dale Long over at first base. Baumholz beat the throw by by half a step. 
That was the only player that got on base on Friend that whole day. <laughs> we wound up winning the game two to nothing or three to nothing, but that was as close to Bob came to, uh, to a perfect game, and it, it shows you that the game can be a game of inches. Mm -hmm. I recognize this might be kind of an awkward question, but I think we're all mostly familiar with what it would be like if you were uh, maybe someone's son and you're you're coming up, you're you're playing organized sports, and and maybe your dad was successful at those sports, and so you're getting lessons from a young age, but. I don't know, assuming, Riley, you're now, you've turned into an adult of a certain maturity, but you also would have been a young boy, you would have been playing baseball for a while, and at what age, if if hopefully by this age, did you start to appreciate the fact that your grandfather did play in the major leagues and, and maybe start listening to the lessons? Because I have to think that when you're like 6 or 7 or, or 12 or 14, maybe you're more inclined to roll your eyes. Yeah, I would definitely say it was around early high school, I think, you know, it's when I started to take baseball more seriously and, uh, you know, the more I heard stories about him and like how good he was and all the, like all the good things people had to say. And then, you know, that's when I really, I think that's when I really started to appreciate it more. And then as I've grown older, you know, it's just more and more appreciation is, especially, you know, during the season, I hear some fans will come up to me and be like, Hey, are you related to Johnny and Eddie O'Brien? And they'll be like, Oh yeah. You know, I, they grew up watching them. And so just every time I hear something like that, you know, it's just, it's cool, and it makes me appreciate appreciate what he did and who he is more and more. Yeah, and we didn't even talk to Johnny that much about his great basketball career last time, but we probably should have. He was the, the first college player to score a 1,000 points in a season and first-team All-American and beat the Globetrotters very memorably. Did you play other sports growing up, Riley? Were you as serious about other sports, or did you concentrate on baseball? Um, you know what I mean? When I was a kid, I played all the sports, you know, basketball and soccer and a little football. And, but I think for the most part, it was pretty much just baseball after I played soccer probably up until I was like maybe 12, 13. And after that, it was pretty much just baseball. Mm -hmm. I kind of just fell in love with it. And that was the only sport I wanted to play. Yeah. And Johnny, I know you and Ed were both drafted by the Hawks and, and could have played in the NBA. And there's a, a lot of discussion these days about is it better to specialize early and play the sport that you know you want to play year round? Or is it better to take some time off and play other sports? Did you feel like the basketball helped you as a baseball player? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the thing that gets lost sometimes in the translation is that Ed and I used basketball and baseball to get a college degree. That's what we were aiming for. And so the way to get it, because we didn't have any money, was to excel in sports. And so when it was basketball season, we did everything we could to improve as basketball players. When it was baseball season, we did everything in that way. And we went to college, and our, our, our aim was to get a college degree in business administration, which we did and which was very helpful to me and other things I did after sports. And that was the key thing. The, the baseball and the basketball was the vehicle that enabled us to get that education. And then we let the chips fall where they may. Uh, as you said, we got drafted by the NBA. And, uh, but in those days, you could do that. You can't today. Because the seasons are longer and they overlap and you, you can't play both sports. Uh, and basketball today is uh, much more physical than it was in, in the old days. I mean, you've got to have uh, undying strength uh, as well as agility to play in the NBA today. And so 
So anyway, we we didn't uh, program ourselves in any direction except to get that college scholarship, which was the goal of our dad that he wanted us to get. And we were so grateful. That's why we do what we can for Seattle U now of taking a chance on us when nobody else would because they were getting two scholarships on two little guys, 5'8 and 5'9, though Seattle U thought we were 6'4. <laughs> So, Johnny, you, you went straight to the major leagues, and of course the money in the major leagues was very different in the 50s than, than it is now, even with the league minimum, but one of the things you therefore didn't experience was what life is like in the minor leagues. And so, Riley, going back to you, you've been in the minors for a year and a half. You were, you know, you got a signing bonus as an eighth-round pick, but it wasn't one of those seven-figure, eight-figure signing bonuses of, of your. So, I was curious, how... How well taken care of do you feel in the minor leagues? Do you feel like you were put in a good enough position to to get the most out of yourself in terms of what you're able to eat, how you're able to sleep, and just kind of your your habits? Do you feel like you are you're sufficiently taken care of? I guess. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I don't know what it's like in other organizations, but our organization does well. You know, they obviously you know they you can't do anything about the travel and game times and stuff, but they always try to make sure that they have food for us. You know, if, or if not, they give us meal money and. They try to be accommodating for us, and yeah, I think we're taken care of. It would be nice to get a little more money. They don't, but that's not through the organization. That's just the old minor leagues. Sometimes it's kind of hard to live off mm-hmm. a thousand bucks a month, but you know, can't complain. Yeah, getting to play baseball and live my dream. So. It's all worth it. Yeah, I wanted to to ask about the off season because Johnny, when you were playing, lots of guys had off season jobs, or you know maybe you would just take it easy and then you'd work yourself back into shape in spring training. Whereas now guys are working out constantly and and never really let themselves go. How did you spend your off seasons when you were playing in the fifties? Well, they, they, as a comparison, uh, let's say this year Riley gets to the major leagues. His minimum salary will be five hundred and seventy-five thousand. Mm-hmm. My first year in nineteen fifty-three in the major leagues, my salary was six thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So, if you didn't win the World Series, you had to get a job to get to the next year. Then one year, a couple of years, I worked for the coroner out in Seattle picking up bodies, and uh, you would get any kind of a job. And it was a little difficult to get a job because. You weren't getting a job that somebody could say, oh, this guy's going to be with the with the company for a long time. You were just getting an interim halftime job to make enough money to get to the next baseball season. So things have dramatically changed. The player today, uh, if he's in the major league, say, a year, and he's got that much of a salary, take the tax out of that, he has enough left over that he can spend the winter uh, in training and working out and stuff like that. In our day, if you didn't win the World Series, you had to get a job. So you didn't. You when you went to spring training, you were you were basically starting all over again to to get yourself into the finest shape you could for the beginning of the season. Mm-hmm. And that was before guys routinely lifted weights. I mean, did you work out? Did you do anything to stay in shape? We were not allowed to lift weights, and we couldn't. Uh, we weren't supposed to play basketball or ski or anything like that. And we couldn't play golf during during the season. We we lived by all the old wives' tales in, in those days. And uh, then now you know there, there's better nutrition. There's uh, more attention to what you can and cannot do, uh, how it affects your body toward the game of baseball. And uh, like uh, and some sports, you know, if, if you could play golf, you could play hockey. 
you know, the swing is kind of the same. And uh, so anyway, uh, it's a whole different era. It's not a bad era. Uh, uh, In comparison, I would have to say they're even to the time. In our time, Major League Baseball was the top of the hill. Today, Major League Baseball, as it is, is the top of the hill. And uh, I think we should all be kind of pleased that it has uh, grown to be the game that it is, and it is the game that is still so very enjoyable to the people of this country. What was your off-season like, Riley? What kind of training did you do? Um, I mean, I came home, probably rested for two weeks, and then got right into lifting and preparing for this season. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the four times a week, I go to a trainer and with a couple other couple other minor league guys and a couple big league guys. And Yeah, I mean, it's just basically spending the entire off-season getting ready for the next season did you uh did you give any consideration to working for the corner going out and just picking up bodies <laughs> i did not know hey i never got a complaint from my customer <laughs> i was wondering riley you this is going back a bit but you said that you you had recently had sort of a track man presentation given to you that showed what your your fastball is what your breaking stuff is and I don't know if, if that's the first time that you've you've had that information presented to you, but I know when I think back to when I used to pitch, I just kind of dreamed that I would have had the, the ability to get my own stuff tracked and looked at. It just seems like it would be fun to dig into. So or are you – you said that last season you weren't given – none of you were given that much information. They didn't want to overwhelm you, and maybe things are going to change this year. But are you someone who – where you just wish that you had more and more information about yourself or – do you think that you'd be vulnerable to just overthinking it? I enjoy it. You know, it's not something I feel like I need, but looking at it, I think is really cool and kind of lets you think about the game in a different way. And um, I have one of my teammates, he's a good buddy of mine, and he uh, he kind of does some of that stuff. And so i talking to him throughout the season, just kind of learning more about it, and how, you know, different spin rates and how your spin axis, you know, and how all that stuff affects your pitches. I think, uh, you know, I'm all for it, you know getting more information about what my pitches do and how they'll be more successful and when to use them and where to throw it. And I think that's all going to help. We've talked about money a couple times, and this is obviously a big topic this offseason. Lots of discussion about free agency and how guys aren't getting signed to the contracts they were recently. Now, as you were saying, Johnny, relative to when you were playing, these contracts are all enormous, and uh, it's a much bigger business now, and bigger attendance and bigger broadcast contracts, just more money coming in. So do you look at this as someone who played before free agency and say, oh all these guys don't know how good they have it and and maybe there's some bitterness there or do you say hey this is great you know get whatever you can i I wish that we had been able to well go back to my first year six thousand dollars was a a pretty handsome salary in in those days uh you know so you went with the times uh, you know inflation has come along uh, a lot of different things and uh, we were happy with the money we made Uh, we worked hard to earn it uh, we never knew what anybody else was making. And, it, you know, it was kind of like going to bar business, what Ralph Kiner was making, though we know he was making a hell of a lot more than the rest of us <laughs> and uh, stuff like that. So, no, we we didn't uh, make that kind of a comparison. We we felt we had a good-paying job uh, in an elite situation, and we were happy to be there. 
One thing I realized I should have asked, Riley, have you at any point since you're in the minor leagues, have you been approached by representatives for uh, for either big league advance or pando pooling or any of those companies that offer sort of uh, uh, money up front in exchange for some uh, portion of future earnings? Yeah, I was I was approached by a couple of those pooling companies and you know did some thinking about it, but it just didn't really seem like something that I was interested in. Kind of kind of almost felt like he was betting against myself. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think they're interesting concepts, but it wasn't really for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether you have seen any of these proposals that have been discussed in the last couple of days, Johnny, but there's all this talk of, you know, maybe lowering the mound or moving the mound back or limiting the number of pitchers you can have on a roster at one time or or mandating that guys have to face uh, three hitters at least before you remove them. And it's just all kind of to combat the strikeouts and the velocity and, and some of the things that we've been talking about. And I wonder, you know, as you said, it's a different game. It's still a great game. Are there ways in which you think it's a less spectator-friendly game because of the the lack of contact and all the pitchers coming in and out, or is it just different but equally entertaining in your eyes? Well, the the thing about it is you're into the era of enormous contracts, and so the ball club has to, to generate enough revenue to pay those contracts, and that can only be done by advertising, sponsorship, uh, people in the seats. And so uh, the game has uh, changed into, in some ways, a bit of a show where uh, there's entertainment that goes out of the ballpark uh, uh, that you never saw in the past, and that's to get more people in there, uh, more concession revenue, uh, things of that nature. And, And so if you're doing, say, $12, $13 a person ahead in uh, concession revenue and you uh, lose 300,000 people because you're not doing well, it's a heck of a lot of money comes out of your thing. So there's a whole bunch of of, uh, intangibles that go into what a team can afford to pay uh, based on how many people they get and how much sponsorship and how much radio and TV rights they they have. And so that that has changed the game. Uh, But it has to be if you're going to meet the kind of payrolls that you have now. Uh, In between innings, uh, where there maybe used to be one advertisement, now there's probably two, sometimes three, to to generate revenue. And I think that isn't going to change unless you put, you tell everybody you're going back to 1960 uh, salaries or things like that. So, uh, no, I I don't think there's a great deal that could be changed in the game. I I do think the, the picture should be. Uh, more required to pitch the ball within the 30 seconds that they're allowed to once they get it back. And I do think the the batters should be required to stay. You know, last year they had the batter had to stay in the batter's box. I don't think that rule was enforced maybe five times the whole year. And I, I think that part of the actual play of the game can be increased a little bit, but it's not going to increase dramatically. So I think uh, in our day when a ball game went two hours and 15 minutes with the most, you're looking at three-hour games today and it's not going to change. And I don't see anything that can really dramatically change it. Hmm. I guess the last thing I should ask is uh, whether you two have divergent or very similar opinions of the pitch clock, which sounds like it is going to be coming to Major League Baseball pretty soon and already exists in the minors. Yeah, Riley, you've been pitching with the pitch clock, so what are your thoughts? I mean, I don't mind it at all. I've always been a fan of you know having a quick pace. I mean, whether it's clock or not, I like. I feel like it keeps the batter uncomfortable, and 
you know, I'm not a big fan of waiting around a while. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's no issue for me. I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. It, it definitely gives you enough time. It would be different if you felt rushed, but when I'm pitching, I don't, I don't feel rushed with the clock. So, I mean, I'm all for it. Yeah. I don't know if guys were taking that long that they needed one when you were playing, Johnny. Uh, there were some that were slow, uh, but we we didn't pay much attention to it. It never really came into play. And uh, uh, so it, uh, and I think that's something that should be looked at is a, a, a more attention on the part of the umpires on the pitch clock and the, and the batter staying in the batter's box. And, uh, you might pick up a few minutes, but it's not going to. It's not going to dramatically change. I, I don't think the mound is sixty feet, six inches away. That uh, that hasn't changed uh, in, in probably a century, and that that's okay. And whoever invented the, the game of baseball and said the bases should be ninety feet apart uh, had to be a, a great visionary because that's that's worked perfectly to this day. And I and I think. There's nothing wrong with the game. It's a different game than when I played it. Uh, it's not that dramatically different. It's just in time and in uh, size and possibly the fact that the agents are telling the pitchers, give me strikeouts, I can get you more money. The agent for the batter saying, hit me home runs, and I can get you uh, more money rather than uh, – uh, let's do this thing to, to win the game first, like hitting behind the runner to second base with with uh, set runner at second base and nobody out advancing into a more scoring position and stuff like that. A little bit of that has changed. But all in all, I don't see much being changed. Uh, and, and change shouldn't be made just for the, change, for the sake of change. I think if you know the ball game today, you should have in the back of the mind you're going to be out there uh, watching this ball game for three hours. Knowing that going in uh, and seeing it the way it's played today, uh, I wouldn't change a thing. Mm-hmm. And I was also going to ask you what you think about replay, because last time we talked to you, you told us a great story about an umpire who made a, a bad call but said that he doesn't change his calls, and that was that. Do you wish that you had played an era when bad calls could be changed? You know, the, the replay, in my mind, has shown over the years they've put it in how good the umpires really are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they they don't have time to have a team meeting on a call. Boom, boom, you make it. And every now and then they'll blow one. But uh, what the heck, uh, you know, like they tell people that there was only one perfect man and even he was crucified. So, you know, they're going to make mistakes. But they, they don't make them in, in, because they want to make them. They make them trying to make the best call they can and uh, there are occasions where it would come into play on a ball close to, they call it the foul pole, which should be the fair pole, because if you hit it, it's a home run. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and there's times when it's a little difficult to see which side of it was on, uh, things like that. But uh, getting into um, a double play, the runner being safe at first base uh, uh, because of a missed call, that doesn't happen that often. So I think they, there's a place for the instant replay, but it should not be used uh, uh, more than just on uh, things that are terribly important. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I wanted to ask, your niece mentioned to me that there's a, a book that has been written or is being written about you and your brother. Is there anything you can share about that? Yeah, Dan Raley, who's an excellent writer, wrote a uh, biography book on Ed and I, 
the title is, is Tell Me You're Not the O'Briens. <laughs> and that was the first words we heard in Seattle when they thought they were going to seize two guys 6'4 and two guys 5'9. <laughs> My father and you, who was the president, he wrote this back. And I wasn't for it, but what will happen if this book ever sees the light of day? Any proceeds from it, uh, I will not make a dime, nor Ed's widow, uh, will all go to Seattle University's uh, Ed, Ed O'Brien Endowment Fund. Uh, and that's why I participated in it, because, uh, you know, Ed and I were able to uh, obtain a scholarship, uh, which led to some good things happening afterwards. And hopefully uh, the proceeds of an endowment fund for, for the Ed O'Brien Endowment Fund at Seattle U will help somebody else get the opportunity that Ed and I had. So that's, and, and uh, you know, I said to myself, self, I wouldn't want to read a book about me, and, and so far nobody else does, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I think we would, and I think a lot of our listeners would, so there's a market out there. Well, thank you both for joining us. This has been a treat, and Riley, best of luck with your season and career, and I, I hope the, the call-up comes soon sometime for you, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that would be really special for both of you. I, I know that it would be for you, but I'm sure for your grandfather to, to be able to see that, it too. It would be definitely for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And Johnny, thank you very much for coming back on. Man, any time. I thank you very much. And Riley, thank you for having luck, me. Man. <laughs> Thanks, Grandpa. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. Isn't Johnny just the best? If you haven't heard episode 1153, the first time we had him on, please do yourself a favor and go back and listen to it. He is just a joy, and I hope he is with us for many more years and many more podcast appearances. We've been on a bit of a tight schedule with this week's shows, so we haven't had a chance to banter about a couple other developments. With the Mariners and the Dodgers, MLB finished its investigation of Dr. Lorena Martin's allegations against the Mariners and Jerry DePoto and Scott Service and Annie McKay specifically. She had levied accusations of sexism and racism. Pretty serious sounding stuff. MLB concluded after a review from a law firm that there was no evidence to corroborate her claims. She subsequently called the investigation itself into question and said that although she was interviewed as part of that process, some of the sources she suggested that they interview were not interviewed. She also noted that the investigator for the law firm was a former MLB lawyer. So this will continue because Martin has sued the Mariners. I don't know what the resolution of that will be or whether we'll ever find out anything else because even if that's settled, we probably wouldn't hear the details. So that may bring an end to that story, at least from a public perspective. The Mariners had already conducted their own internal review and seemed confident that this would be MLB's finding. Again, it's really hard for an outsider to know the truth in this case. At the same time, we've heard of a few cases that have surfaced from the Dodgers from a few years ago involving sexual assault and stalking by some minor league players on Gabe Kapler's watch as the Dodgers player development director. The Dodgers opted to keep those cases in-house, probably in at least one case in violation of a newly implemented MLB rule about reporting such incidents. So there's been a lot of good writing about this. My pal Michael Bauman wrote about it for The Ringer. Kapler has released his own statement on his site about these incidents. Others have questioned how he handled them, which I think is fair in certain respects. Although in this case too, MLB has investigated and cleared those involved 
involved. We will definitely get into all of this in more depth in the Dodgers and Mariners and possibly Phillies team preview podcast, so we'll talk to people who cover those teams about it. I'll just say, though, as a general statement without weighing in on any of these specific cases, I think it's good that these things come to light. I know that every time we hear stories like this, we think, oh, this is the worst and teams are terrible and this sport is not handling these matters appropriately, and and certainly that is true in some cases. But I think the fact that we know about these incidents at all is itself sort of a sign of progress. I mean, sadly, in a sense, but racism and sexism and assault, obviously not new, more prevalent in the past than in the present, if anything. And for most of baseball history and just history history, we just wouldn't have known about these things. Large swaths of society wouldn't have thought there was any problem with them. So it is progress, and progress is painful, and I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna here who's just putting the most positive spin possible on all of this, but I do think we have to keep in mind, I mean, we're talking about whether the Dodgers violated a rule. In one case, it seems like they did, but that rule was not implemented until 2015, which is not long ago. So the fact that there was even a guideline in place or an MLB domestic violence policy, these are all very recent innovations. It's unfortunate that they're recent innovations, but I think when we hear about these stories, we should lament them, of course, and do whatever we can to change them and prevent similar incidents from happening or being handled in the same way in the future. But I think the fact that we're discussing them, that is how these things change. Not that this behavior will ever completely cease, but next time one of these incidents arises, maybe it will be handled differently because of the backlash to this news. So that is sort of the silver lining to a bunch of bad situations. I know it's easy for me to say because I and people like me are typically not the targets of this treatment. I just try to keep that in mind, not just in baseball, but in culture at large. We're just bombarded with so much bad news. It's not because there's more bad stuff happening for the most part. It's just because we're finding out about it and because we're actually outraged about it instead of sweeping it under the rug. So progress is slower than we'd like, but not non-existent. You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Sign up, pledge some small monthly amount, keep us going. The following five listeners have already done so. Jay Wade Edwards, David Dudley, Ted Miles, Sam Klein, and Michael Underhill. Thanks to all of you. You can also rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at bangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. The season preview series will roll on next time. We will be talking about the Rockies and the Pirates. I know, I know, but you should still listen. <laughs> okay, those teams probably aren't our biggest draws, but every team deserves its episode in the spotlight. We will talk to you next time. Indeed, no more. My own true love